Chapter 19 The Cottage Grounds I screamed. Seizing Pip's arm, I pulled him backward and away from danger. In doing so, we toppled over Walter's kneeling body, and the three of us tumbled to the ground in a writhing mass of limbs. Scrambling backward on my heels and palms like a crab, I risked a glimpse up at the interloper. Our puppy, who had apparently conquered his fears and left the rowboat's safety, was yipping and bouncing excitedly around the stranger's bare feet and naked shins. Above my spirited puppy, I glimpsed flowing fabric, bordered by a hemline of dainty baby's breath, which wafted lazily in the easy breeze. From here my eyes traveled upward to behold a dress of whites and purples, each color melting into the other and out again like garden violets. The dress was tied around the waist with a sunny sash of black-eyed Susans, the blossoms woven craftily together. I couldn't quite make out the woman's face. In contrast against the bright backdrop of the sky, it remained cloaked in shadow. What I did note was that she wore some kind of crown in her hair, for it stood out like a bumpy ridge upon the smooth curve of her skull. Holding my palm upward to block out the sunlight, I squinted and tried to distinguish her features. The woman, in turn, seized my raised hand. I froze, not even daring to breathe. I knew that touch. Do you believe in me now, Peter? The voice was one I believed I would never hear again during my mortal days under this sun. Distrusting even my own eyes and ears, I whispered, Mama? She pulled me to my feet and stepped back, allowing me to look upon her fully. There it was, her exquisite face, no longer blanched and blotched, but full and radiant once more. And her hair, it wasn't matted with sweat and grease. No, these springy coils of strawberry blonde were interwoven with ribbons of lavender and crowned with a wreath of purple-blossomed ivy. In the end, it was her eyes which convinced me beyond doubt, for they were eyes which no charlatan or master of stage makeup could ever have duplicated. With all the warmth and sweetness of melty chocolate, those brown eyes smiled at me. In them I saw the undying adoration and fidelity I had known since the day I first opened my own. She was Mama, the same Mama who birthed me, raised me, and loved me, the same Mama who had died two days earlier. She was the same, yet somehow different. Her essence remained unaltered, but her substance, the stuff she was made of, had changed. Light itself had been knitted into the fabric of her flesh. Skin and hair and eyes pulsed with an energy, and electricity evolved far beyond that of her previous life. Even her clothing shimmered with this seraphic incandescence, which clung to her like dewdrops at the dawn of creation. Mama, I said again, confidently and without suspicion. The dams and fountains and floodgates of jubilation burst forth in my heart, and I jumped at her. She caught me in her waiting arms and rocked me, cradling me against her breast. She was of heaven, resplendent and sublime, yet still bone and blood and marrow. 
How? How? I asked. Tears of joyful relief spilled down my cheeks, but I no longer cared whether Walter might see them. Mama simply stroked my hair and shushed me. As she held me, her warm touch soothed every ache and bound up every wound my young heart had suffered. What matters is not the how, but the what, she finally replied. What do you mean? I asked, as she knelt and wiped away my tears. I mean, what are we going to do with this miracle? She answered. What will make this gift of extra time as special as it could possibly be? Anything, I said. Anything, as long as it's with you. She beamed and kissed my forehead as tenderly as if I were a newborn. Her lips lingered there only a moment, but I wouldn't have traded it away even if I were offered all eternity in exchange. During those seconds, Mama and I were the only two beings in the universe, and I savored them like they might be my last. But the moment ended, and I became aware again of a third and fourth presence, my brothers standing on either side of me. Mama's envied gaze shifted to my left, and she cried out, Hello, my Pippi. Oh, I have missed you, my little pea. Understandably confused, Pip hugged her and asked, What are you doing out here, Mama? Why didn't you come home? She brushed his hair from his forehead and kissed him. I am so sorry, sweetheart, but I cannot go back again. I must stay here on the aisle, or else travel beyond. But why? With a wistful grin, Mama pulled him into a tight hug and said, because that is what has been permitted, and I am not allowed any nearer to the living world. But you may come here and visit me any time you like. How does that sound? Pip seemed skeptical about her strange plan, but he shrugged anyway and said, Okay, I guess. Mama moved on to Walter. Cupping his angular face in her hands, she crooned, My faithful Wawi, thank you for bringing your brothers here. Peter didn't believe me, Walter tattled. Mama chuckled. I know. Is that why you had to knock some sense into him? Walter and I glanced at each other, both surprised. How had she known about our fight if she had been on the aisle this whole time? But she didn't press the issue, and neither did we. She didn't even make us apologize. Instead, she squeezed all three of us against herself and sighed contentedly. The onlooking cardinals emitted a low warble, mimicking Mama's sigh. Her serenity was their satisfaction also. Mama released us and stood abruptly. Come, she exclaimed. We cannot waste time sitting around like this. I have far too much to show you, and we have far too much to do. With that sudden announcement, off she marched toward the trees, the puppy didn't need anyone telling him twice. With his tail whipping back and forth, he skipped along beside her. Where are we going? Walter asked excitedly, running until he had caught up. To the cottage, of course. I flashed Walter a look of skepticism. What could our risen-from-the-dead mama possibly want from a run-down cabin? The throng of cardinals hopped from treetop to treetop, 
following us as we tromped familiar paths through the forest. Their song rose to the sky, though it was more subdued than before. Neither their music nor their presence was a source of trepidation for us any longer. With Mama going before us, their myriad trills became a jubilant chorus in our ears and hearts. Just as the isle had brought both the birds and Mama, it also delivered a third surprise. When we arrived at what used to be a dilapidated homestead, we discovered a transformation even more pronounced than the changes in Mama. The great boughs overhead, which once choked out the daylight and cloaked the clearing in shadow, had withdrawn their many arms and fingers to make way for naked sky, so that sunshine now enveloped the glade with its cheering glow. But the far greater marvel were the grounds themselves. They were no longer weedy and overgrown, but trimmed and manicured, as elegant as those of any palace. Thick hedges bordered the glade on three sides, each bisected by high stone archways which led to the forest beyond. But these hedges were no ordinary walls of greenery, square-cut or rounded on top. Rather, they took the form of a menagerie, a circus of animals from around the world, like life-sized, leafy versions of Pip's zoo toys. Four green elephants reared up on their back legs, one at each end or corner of the hedge, trunks raised in silent salute toward the center of the clearing. Between those pachydermatous corner pieces were images of giraffes and rhinos, polar bears and walruses, gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, flamingos, cranes, pythons, crocodiles, tortoises, kangaroos, lions, tigers, gazelles, bison, an eclectic arrangement of creatures from around the world, all of them trimmed into the hedges with such fine detail we could tell which of them were merry or timid, alarmed or combative. The north edge of the clearing, however, had no hedge. Instead, the narrow mound of a flower bed stretched between one topiary elephant and its counterpart across the clearing. In this flower bed, Every season of the year and every corner of the world coexisted as one, for upon its soil bloomed the flowers and grasses of spring and summer and fall, and not only those flora native to eastern Pennsylvania, but from across the entire globe. Blood-red anemones from Jerusalem mingled with canary-yellow orchids of Columbia. Australian desert flame danced side by side in the breeze with Alaskan lupine, composing together a waltz of gold and periwinkle. Every hue and shade was represented among the blooms of that garden, so that one could behold the entire visible spectrum of color in a single glance. As with the hedges, a stone archway stood in the center of this unnatural flowerbed. Emerald vines climbed up its sides and crowned its keystone with vibrant petals of blue morning glory. Perhaps a dozen feet in front of this arch, the freshwater spring bubbled up where it always had, only now it was encircled by a wall of pale limestone bricks. Within it, the water pooled clear and cold. It escaped the well through a wide notch near the top of the brickwork, where it gushed out and down the wall's outer face. This became the headwaters of a lazy stream, one which wound like a ribbon around the slopes of the clearing until it finally disappeared into the forest beyond.
As impressive as these perimeter features may have been, what lay inside them most captivated our attention. Beginning at each of the four stone archways, four flagstone paths led inward. They did not, however, run straight to a meeting point in the clearing center. Instead, they spiraled inward like the arms of a pinwheel, looping partway around the grounds before doubling back toward a single focal point in the middle. Between the bands of flagstone were bands of lawn, and on that lawn stood fruit trees, each spaced evenly from the others. These were no taller than saplings, yet each appeared otherwise mature in its form and function, for all were bountiful with ripe fruits. As we entered through the stone archway, I also realized no two trees bore the same fruit. Each was unique among the garden, so that there was one plum tree, one apple, one lemon, one peach, one orange, and one apiece of many other varieties I had neither seen nor heard of before. At the center of it all was the cottage, not the rotting ramshackle cabin that once occupied these grounds, but a quaint bungalow built of new and sturdy timbers, and whose proud windows gleamed gaily beneath the afternoon sun. Creeping ivy and blooming vines clambered up its high walls, where they met and mingled upon the eaves of a golden thatched roof. Standing tall above the rest of the cottage were a pair of chimneys, one at each end, whose variegated stones reminded me of our castle home walls. Smoke rose from the east chimney, and with it the unmistakable aroma of fresh bread, which Mama must have begun baking before coming to find us at Emerald Hill. It was a scene taken straight from one of Mama's fairy tales. Did you do all this? Walter asked, mystified. I did, she replied with a self-satisfied grin. Do you like it? It's amazing, he whispered. Left of the path was a peach tree. It was little taller than Mama herself, yet its branches sagged with dozens of perfect fruits. Effortlessly, she plucked a peach and handed it to Walter. Try it, she said. You will not be disappointed. Walter bit in. Its juice dripped down his chin, and his eyes widened with wonder. That's the best peach I ever had, he declared. It might be the best one in the whole wide world. Mama giggled. Good. I have been working hard on those. And the best part is that they never run out. To show us what she meant, she leaned toward the bit of broken stem still attached to the branch. When she was close enough to kiss it, she whispered soft words to the tree. I couldn't understand them, but when she stepped back, there was no longer an empty stem where she had plucked the peach. Instead, a growing bud, tender and green, had formed there. Mama had spoken life into being. She took in our bewildered faces, smiled bemusedly, and said, You will see greater things than this. Shall we go inside? I have a surprise waiting. Along the spiraling pathway we went, winding around the cottage to its backside. Through a wooden door engraved with an image of tangled rose bushes, we entered a surprisingly modest dwelling. While everything outside the cottage was fanciful and grandiose, 
its inside was cozy, glowing with Mama's warm personality. The puppy made himself instantly at home, bursting past our legs to begin a hasty exploration of these new surroundings. My brothers took a different approach, slowly soaking everything in as we savored the miracle spread before us. The cottage had no interior walls and thus no real rooms, yet each area was defined as its own. In the middle portion where the back door entered was a modest dining space made up of a stout table, four chairs, and a dinnerware hutch much like ours at home. To the left of this was a spacious kitchen, complete with a full array of hardwood cabinetry and polished countertops. A mother-of-pearl washbasin and hand-pump faucet sat below a crystalline window, so that, while scrubbing dishes, you could also look out into the peaceful garden. Against the kitchen's far wall stood an enormous potbelly stove, with space aplenty to roast, bake, barbecue, and fricassee enough food to feed a circus. Occupying the right side of the cottage was a sitting room, a pair of easy chairs and sofa, all covered in velvety pink fabric and embroidered with purple lilacs, provided ample options for Mama's guests to relax and enjoy each other's company. Lanterns sat upon small tables at either end of the sofa, but because of the effulgent daylight pouring through the high-arched windows, these remained unlit. The far eastern wall contained another door which exited into the garden area, but the rest of it was lined with book-laden shelves. It seemed that all Mama's favorites, ranging from Arthur Conan Doyle to Calvin Ziegler, had found a new home here. Whereas Daddy always alphabetized his book collections, Mama kept hers in death just as she had in life, that is to say, in no particular order at all. I had, of course, expected none of this. But what I expected least of all stood in the corner below an open window. It was a bassinet. A light blanket lay draped over the top, shielding whatever lay inside it from the direct sunlight. The puppy approached the bassinet. He snuffled at it curiously, as though he smelled something foreign yet familiar at the same time. His exploration was cut short by Mama, who cried out, No, no, away from there. He gave the bassinet a final glance of forced indifference, then moved on to inspect other oddities. Mama crossed the room to the bassinet. She lifted a corner of the blanket to peer inside then quickly covered it again. Still sleeping, she murmured with a dreamy grin. Then, glancing toward us, she said, Do be careful not to wake the baby. We have had a long few days. Before any of us could recover from this new bewilderment, Mama gasped and rushed toward the dining room. Oh no, she wailed. My cakes! Where did they go? Only then did I notice the cake stands. There were at least a dozen scattered throughout all three rooms of the cottage. Some were on the kitchen counters, others on the dining room table. A couple smaller ones had even made their way onto the bookshelf's bare spaces. And all of them were empty. I spent the entire morning getting them ready, she groaned miserably. What could have happened to them? I think I know. 
Walter answered, pointing at the table. Amidst the vacant cake stands sat a long strip of yellowed parchment, curled at the corners. Near its bottom, and in a text much larger than the lines of poetry above, was a familiar signature. Gurgen the Goblin. <laughs>